Hello and welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In with me, Paul Johnson. And today I'm really pleased that we are talking about one of the big issues of our time, climate change and the role of policy, in particular tax policy, in tackling it. And I'm particularly pleased to be joined by Alice Pierlo from the Centre for Business Taxation at the University of Oxford and Peter Lavelle, a colleague of mine here at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And we're going to talk a bit about where we are with moving towards our target of net zero in the UK, but we're mostly going to focus on what are some of the policies that governments can follow both here and internationally as we make progress in that direction. It's particularly good to have Alice here because she is an expert on one of the things that really matters here beyond the economics that we work on here at the IFS, uh, looking at the legal situation in terms of developing global uh, responses, global carbon taxes, and these adjustments at borders, the fact that uh, we may need to change trade policy if we're going to reduce our overall carbon footprint. Uh, But let's start, Peter, just by saying a little bit about where we are in the UK in terms of doing that, in terms of reducing our carbon footprint. How how, how are we doing? Well, there's no doubt that it's going to be a significant challenge for the UK to uh, reach its net zero target. The government's ambition is for net carbon emissions um, to be uh, zero by 2050, Um, Over the last 30 years, the UK has made pretty good progress in reducing its carbon emissions. They've fallen by about 40% since uh, 1990. Relative to other countries, that's pretty good going. So the UK saw a faster per capita reduction in carbon emissions than any other country in the G7, for example, over that period. Uh, But what's difficult is that the pace of emissions reductions going forward is going to have to be uh, much faster than it was in the past. Um, So if you look at the pace of emissions reductions over the last 30 years, they're about 1.3% of 1990 levels per year. Uh, And going forward, they're going to need to be about 3% of 2018 levels. So there's a significant increase, acceleration in the amount of uh, emissions reductions that we need uh, if we're going to meet that net zero target. Uh, uh, Alice, one of the things that you're obviously focused on is the international um, environment. The uh, the, the level of um, progress across the world is uh, is pretty variable. And one of the things that Peter referred to is the 40% or so reduction in our emissions. Uh, but once you take account of our consumption, progress hasn't been quite so good, has it? Yeah, that's true. It's interesting to know that reductions in emissions are usually accounted based on production level rather than consumption. And so all countries' commitments are linked to their reduction in emissions with regards to where emissions are being released. And so not so much the emissions linked to consumptions because the emissions related to the production of a car will be accounted for in the country where the car is being produced rather than in the country where the car is being used. And so that's why we need a global response to climate change, because we, a country alone couldn't account for all the emissions linked to both production and consumption, because it's very, very difficult to know how much emissions are linked to uh, the goods you consume, right? Like, how could we know how much emissions have been generated for the production of a car? To know that, we need to go into the country where the car has been produced and check at the level of the plant 
so as to assess how much greenhouse gas emissions have been released during the production process of the car. Which is one of the many reasons why global response is so important. Obviously, it doesn't matter where carbon dioxide emissions occur, they have the same effect on uh, the planet wherever they happen, which is why this is a global issue. But equally, the response needs to be global. There's no point the UK uh, stopping building cars or producing steel or producing concrete if we just bring it all in uh, from other parts of the world. And one of the reasons that our so-called production emissions have fallen more than our consumption emissions is that we are importing more stuff um, from other countries. But Peter, the um, good progress you've described, and actually most of that progress, I think it would be fair to say, has come through decarbonising our electricity supply. We're not all the way there yet, but most of those reductions in our emissions have come from moving from coal and gas to produce electricity towards wind um, in particular and some solar. What are the what are the big challenges going forward from here? Well, so it's exactly as you said that um, most of the carbon emissions reductions over the last uh, 30 years have come from electricity generation. That's been achieved uh, through a whole uh, series of, of levies that are applied on electricity supplies, and the revenues from those levies are used to subsidize renewable power generation. Going forward, there's going to be more challenges in further decarbonizing the uh, electricity sector. We saw the difficulties with some of the challenges that proposed by uh, having a, a grid that's largely powered by renewables recently when we've had problems with intermittency and we've needed to fire up more gas-powered power stations, even coal-powered stations, to keep the grid uh, going. So that's a challenge that will need to be addressed as we increase the share of renewables. So just to be clear, the consequence of that is if you've got lots of wind and lots of solar energy most of the time, you still need to keep a whole load of gas and other stations available for when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. Yes, exactly. So as well as, as, well as the cost of... Uh, building and operating renewable power stations, we also need to take into account the cost of maintaining uh, capacity in, for example, gas-fired power stations um, so that they can step in in the event that the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine. Uh, and of course, that's difficult to do if there's a you know, gas shortage at the same time as you're having problems with, with, with renewable power. That's one problem. Uh, a further problem is, of course, that we want to electrify uh, a lot of things uh, as we decarbonizing home heating and transport. So electricity demand is going to go up for those reasons, even if that might be offset by reductions in um, a demand through greater energy efficiency and so on. And then the, the other challenge is, is that now we've achieved large emissions reduction, particularly in electricity generation, we need to start looking at other sources of emissions and these sources of emissions that might be more politically challenging. So things like home heating, for example, transport and motoring um, and agriculture. So they're what the government's going to eventually going to have to start looking at if it wants to achieve uh, achieve net zero. And of course, those are areas that um, they haven't touched recently, you know, possibly for because of the political challenges involved. Two, two really important points there, I think. One is that pretty much all of the decarbonisation we've done so far been through the electricity system. And actually, we, the consumers, haven't noticed anything. This is the electricity that comes out of the plug is exactly the same as it always was. We are going to notice a bit when we have to drive electric cars. We're going to notice a lot 
when someone comes to rip out our gas boiler and install an air source heat pump, or we're told that we can't eat meat. I mean, we're not going to quite get there, but things are going to affect us. But the other thing that's really important from what Peter just said is that this um, decarbonisation electricity supply doesn't just mean replacing all the gas power stations. It means probably creating two or three times as much electricity going forward as we are at the moment, because we're going to be doing so much more with that electricity. So let's move on a little from from some of those issues and talk about one of the other big challenges, uh, which is aviation. And, you know, we're in a world at the moment where actually the tax on flying is very small. We have an air passenger duty. We know that, or it looks like, that in 20 or 30 years' time, aviation could be a very large chunk of our emissions. But there are a whole series of problems here because this is an international industry and we need international agreements to make progress on that. Alice, can you tell us a little bit about why this is all so complicated and why we've made so little progress actually on that particular sector? Yeah, certainly. And I I think there are legal and practical reasons for why it's so difficult on the legal side. And that's also something you you say, like you can't really act at the unilateral level the straightforward way to internalize the emissions of the aviation sector would be to impose a carbon tax on aviation fuel. But there are many, many legal obstacles to the taxation of fuel for international flights. The Chicago Convention regulates international civil aviation and has been signed by many countries, and it prevents its signatories from taxing fuel on board of an aircraft of another contracting state on the condition that the fuel is retained on board. And on top of these international conventions, many countries have concluded bilateral aviation agreements that prevents them from taxing fuel introduced or supplied in the territory for use in an aircraft of an airline of another contracting state. And because of all these legal provisions, many countries are required not to tax fuel supplied on their territory for international flights. And in any case, regardless of these bilateral aviation agreements, countries are discouraged to do so because uh, air carriers could very easily avoid paying those taxes. They could simply fuel their tanks in other countries where no tax is imposed on aviation fuel. And that might explain why the UK has this air passenger duty, because it's not a tax on fuel. It's a tax charged on passenger flights from a UK airport, and the rates varies uh, based on the destination and and the, the class of travel. But it's not a tax on fuel, and so the link to greenhouse gas emissions is much less straightforward. But we should not be too negative. Uh, I think there is still hope. Uh, At the international level, the International Civil Aviation Organization has established a global market-based mechanism for the aviation sector. It's called the CORSIA for Carbon Offsetting and Reduction Scheme for International Aviation. And this scheme could be uh, effective in the coming years. If it's successful, it could be a very, very good news for the mitigation of the uh, emissions of the aviation sector. The UK will have to implement the Corsia in UK law. Um, they will also have to think about the relationship between the UK emission trading system and the, the Corsia. And maybe there is space also for reforming the air passenger duty. So it's certainly um, a space to watch. Presumably for the Corsia to work, you need an awful lot of countries to sign up, just as you would do if you were to undo the Chicago Convention on the taxation of fuel? I mean, how well are we doing in getting countries to sign up? And why not just rewrite the Chicago Convention and allow people to tax fuel? 
Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think it would be much more straightforward to just have a tax on aviation fuel. Um, but the ICAO, so the International Civil Aviation Organization, has always been opposed to the use of taxes on the aviation sector, not just taxes on fuels, but also VAT, etc. And so I believe that's the reasons why we have this global market-based mechanisms now being negotiated and implemented at, at the ICO level. There are quite a few countries that have uh, voluntarily signed up for now, so it's, it's not too bad. There are, of course, a few countries that haven't signed up yet, but you know, the situation might change in the coming years because the scheme is now implemented in a voluntary way and it's, it will become fully effective and enforceable in 2027, if I'm not mistaken. Well, you'd think that, you know, this is exactly the sort of international issue it would be top of the agenda at COP26, but uh, it's, it's not, is it? No, it's not. And it's not for good reasons, because all the negotiations at, the, at COP are not related to the aviation and the maritime sector. It has been excluded from uh, the scope of those negotiations 20 years ago. So that's the simple reasons why it's, it's not being discussed. Which to normal human beings listening would seem completely mad, because if there's one thing which is clearly an international issue, this is it. That's true, but I think everything in relation to climate change is international. If you think about the steel industry, you have similar global issues, because as you were mentioning earlier, steel manufacturers could relocate from the UK to other countries. And if not all countries are on board, then you'll necessarily have those problems of carbon leakage. So I, I, I understand that aviation is clearly an international issue, but, uh, and certainly for relatively small countries, like in terms of a geographical scope, for bigger countries, you also have a big share of uh, domestic flights, which wouldn't have those cross-border effects. So yeah, I think that's also important to keep in mind that it's no, not all international flights, but also domestic flights that are problematic. Okay, we've talked a lot around the area of carbon pricing and carbon tax over the last uh, over the last several minutes. Perhaps we should step back a minute and just ask ourselves, what do we mean by carbon pricing, and why do most economists and lots of other people think that a carbon tax is a is a pretty good idea and a good way of getting or helping us at least to get to net zero? Peter, can you just explain what what we mean by pricing carbon and why? We economists are so keen on it as a tool towards getting us towards net zero. The way economists think about the problem is that uh, when you undertake some activity that emits carbon dioxide, that imposes costs on other people that uh, you don't have to pay for. And the way to correct your incentives so that they're in line with what's good, not just for you, but for society as a whole, is to is to put a price on those emissions, either through a tax or perhaps you have to buy carbon permits, um, or so putting a price on carbon through some other means uh, to correct people's behavior. One of the other attractions of the carbon tax, as opposed to other means of getting people to cut the carbon dioxide uh, emissions, such as you know, subsidies or, or, or regulations, is that it's, it's, a, it's a market-based mechanism. So the government doesn't need to know anything about what the cheapest way of, of reducing carbon emissions is. It can just set the tax and then firms and households can change their behavior uh, in ways that is now good for them and decide themselves what's the most cost-effective way for them to reduce their carbon dioxide emissions. Really important point there, again, about why a tax or a market mechanism is so important. This is an area, actually, where one sees uh, governments possibly inevitably 
making quite a lot of big decisions about what they think is the right way forward. It's this kind of green energy technology, or it's that kind of heating technology, and it's that kind of speed. And we may need to do more of that than we'd normally be comfortable with when it comes to climate change. But there are big issues there. One is that it opens government to lobbying. The other is that it uh, you, you get things wrong and make things more expensive. So the price mechanism can be really quite powerful here. But, but Alice, you, were, you weren't talking about taxes when you were talking about the way that we're moving towards some kind of carbon pricing in aviation. You were talking about a trading scheme. Can you just explain to us what, what a trading scheme is and how that differs from a tax? Certainly. An emission trading scheme usually will require heavy energy installations to surrender emission certificates to cover the emissions that they generate on a yearly basis. And some of these certificates are sometimes allocated for free, but most of them are auctions, which means that companies that fall under the scheme will have to pay a price for all the emissions that they generate on a yearly basis. The total amount of certificates is established by the authority. And in principle, there should be a cap on the the maximum amount of greenhouse gas emissions that the authority consider to be uh, the suitable amount for the year. So um, let's say the UK authority could issue a certain number of emission certificates that would correspond to the total amounts of greenhouse gas emissions that they consider appropriate for the industry that fall under the scheme. So that's the logic of the emission trading system. And it differs from a carbon tax because you have certainty as to the reduction in emissions level, which you don't have for a carbon tax. But on the other hand, you don't have any certainty as to the price level. So for the carbon tax, you know that for one ton of CO2 emissions, you'll have to pay so much with the emission trading schemes. You don't get that certainty because the price you'll have to pay depends on how many emission certificates are available on the market and who wants to buy them and who needs to buy them. So you get less certainty as to the price, but you get more certainty as to the result. These are theoretical differences. Uh, in practice, the two instruments might not differ so much because for the tax, you could change the tax rate and then you would get more certainty as to uh, the level of emissions reductions. And for the emission trading systems, you could also play a little bit with the number of emissions allowances that you put into the market. And then you would get more certainty as to the price for each emission certificate. So in, in, in practice, I would say I wouldn't overemphasize the differences between the two instruments. What I think is really, really important is that countries have an effective carbon pricing mechanism. It could be either a tax or an emission trading systems. And the more consistent and coherent those mechanisms are, the better. At the moment, the UK has like big set of instruments. It's quite complicated with an emission trading system, but also taxes on energy use, carbon taxes, and other types of instruments. That's very, very complicated. And it might be better for the UK to reform those instruments and maybe simplify the the existing policy framework so that we would have one single instrument to price carbon emissions. Well, funnily enough, Peter, you've been writing about exactly that recently and illustrating just what an extraordinarily complex uh, set of instruments we have and what very, very different prices we effectively charge for carbon emitted in different places. Yes, that's right. And as Elise was saying, we don't have a single a single carbon price or single carbon tax. The closest we come to that comes from the UK's own emissions trading scheme. That only covers about 30% of UK emissions. 
And on top of, uh, of that trading scheme, there are a whole set of environmental levies and duties that you can think of as, as putting the price on carbon in some way. But um, the way they've been put together has meant very, as you say, very, very different levels of carbon taxation on some sorts of emissions compared to others. So, for example, we tend to tax households' use of energy less than businesses. We tend to tax electricity uh, emissions associated with electricity much more than we do for gas. In fact, for households, because there's a reduced rate of VAT on, on energy, including gas, the net carbon price for gas is, in effect, uh, negative. The tax system relatively favours uh, consumption of gas. It's worth just halting on that. That's a really important point. I think people often don't quite get. The point you're making is that we charge less than the standard rate of VAT on consuming gas. There's no additional tax on it. So relative to consuming other things, the government's effectively subsidising us to burn gas. Yes, and that's important to remember when we think about pricing carbon is we need to think about putting 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 taxes on a system that is to start with not neutral in terms of uh, how it treats different forms of consumption and production so for example we have this reduced rate of, uh, of VAT on on energy we've also talked about the zero rate of VAT that applies to uh, flights so when 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 we're thinking about the overall incentive the tax system gives people we don't just need to think about you know New environmental levies, but what's 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 already in in, in place to work out the overall incentives people have to uh, undertake uh, uh, different activities. I should say all this complexity uh, matters, and it is extremely complex. We spent quite a lot of time trying to get to grips with all the different uh, policies that apply to the energy sector uh, and how they how they translate into 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 taxes on on on, on carbon. The cost of this complexity is one is when it's just it's not very simple and easy for the people involved to understand what their incentives are sometimes. But also it means that, for example, businesses will be making or incentivized to make emissions reductions that are quite costly compared to what households can do in their place. So you're looking at a, a move towards net zero that's going to cost more than it would if we had a more uniform uh, set of carbon prices. That's really important, again, that point about the cost of getting to net zero. Um, I worked uh, a bit uh, with Nick Stern on his review of climate change 15 years ago now. And one of the things he absolutely was banging on about quite rightly was you can deal with climate change relatively cheaply, but only if you do it right, only if you get policies right, you can end up doing it in a way that's much too expensive. But obviously, Peter, one of the obvious impacts of what you're suggesting or talking about is if we did put a carbon tax on and VAT on on domestic gas, for example, that's going to um, not please a lot of people whose bills go up. And indeed, because we know that poorer people consume more gas as a fraction of their income than people who are better off, it will be a bit of a regressive thing to do. Yes, indeed. And I think you've put your finger on one of the most challenging aspects of, of this whole thing, that um, in general, we know that if you, if, you, if you put greater prices on carbon, the people whose consumption baskets are not necessarily the most carbon, but the most carbon intensive in terms of how much carbon is emitted per pound spent, it's the, it's the poorer households that are uh, going to be hit relatively more. How do you address that problem? So the approach we've taken so far is we're not going to price the carbon associated with domestic gas emissions. Instead, we're going to effectively subsidise energy efficiency improvements 
almost exclusively at the moment for low-income households, but also more recently in terms of incentives for, for example, to introduce heat pumps instead of, instead of gas boilers. So we've gone for this approach of subsidizing rather than taxing. The difficulty with that approach is obviously you need to decide what you're going to subsidize. And obviously you have to get the revenue to finance these subsidies from, from somewhere. So it's not, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a costless approach. The way economists traditionally suggest you get around this problem is that, of course, carbon tax is going to raise revenue, and those revenues can be used to compensate the people that lose out from greater carbon pricing in a way that doesn't undo their incentives to actually you know, reduce their emissions. So, for example, you could use the revenue to, to raise certain benefit rates or cut certain taxes or finance and expenditures that are a particular benefit to the people that uh, would otherwise lose out from carbon pricing. But it, is a, it certainly is a very tricky uh, problem to deal with, particularly when you think about how to design a compensation package that's going to that's going to reach the people that are really hurt by these policies with the same not having the unintended consequence of meaning you've actually reduced their incentive to cut emissions. Yeah, and part of the problem, as it were, is that some people on low incomes don't use much gas and some some because they may live in drafty houses or they have medical conditions that mean they need to get very warm, use an awful lot of gas. And it's going to be really hard to compensate everybody appropriately and indeed almost uh, almost impossible. And that's a, that, that's a big political economy question for government as well. But let's move from one tricky question to another. We've been talking largely about um, what's going on in the UK. We've touched on um, aviation as an international issue. But actually, whatever we do in the UK isn't going to have any impact on the climate. What needs to happen is change across the world. And, and Alice, you've been thinking about that in two respects. Firstly, I mean, let's start with one. Is, is, is it possible to get a carbon tax across the world? I mean, can we have a a worldwide carbon tax is this is this is this in the realms of possibility or is that pure science fiction <laughs> people really thought it was pure science fiction but interestingly enough uh, some international organizations have are pushing for that kind of proposal at the moment so there is a policy note by the IMF that has been published a couple of months ago proposing for a minimum carbon price at the global level. And so clearly that's something that's being put on the negotiation table and that could potentially completely change uh, the international climate change talks. So it's impossible to predict whether they'll be successful with the proposal, but it's not impossible that uh, some countries will come together, form a climate club and decide that they want to have a common carbon price on the use of fossil fuels in all those countries. Uh, it would be a very good idea. It's it's clearly no longer impossible because many countries are now adopting carbon prices. Uh, the World Bank has a very nice website where they show all the countries considering or having a carbon price in place. And when you look at that website, you see that more and more countries are popping up, showing that there is a move uh, in favor of carbon pricing instruments all over the world. And it's not just developed countries, it's also developing countries. If you want to do that on an internationally coordinated basis, is, 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 is that a situation in which a trading scheme might be better or easier to implement than a tax that's uh, consistent? Or, or again, is there not that much to call between them? No, again, I think like you could either use one or the other. If you have a global carbon price, I think you need to have a tax if you want to have a uniform price for carbon. Unless you have a global carbon trading systems, 
where every like with trading systems linked between every single country all over the world and in that case the the market price would also be generated at, at the global level like every enterprise wherever they located could buy emissions allowances on this global market i'm not sure that there is a huge difference between a global carbon tax and a global market based mechanism a global emission trading system but to me the, the the global carbon tax seems more straightforward i'm not sure it's easier though especially when it comes to you know the difference between developed and developing countries because as such we could argue that developing countries do not need a carbon price as high as developed countries so the yeah. idea of a uniform carbon price might be in opposition with this principle of common but differentiated responsibility and respective capabilities that underlies international climate change law. That's going to be a really serious issue right across negotiations on uh, on, on climate change. The, um, the, the other sort of aspect of international climate change policy is that in the absence of a uh, global carbon price, and I think we can assume that that absence will be with us for a little while longer, People have been talking about these things called CBAMs, carbon border adjustment mechanisms, which uh, broadly speaking would mean countries like the UK deciding to impose a tax on at least some imports from other countries which have been responsible for producing greenhouse gas emissions. So, for example, if we were to buy some steel from China and uh, the, the, the carbon within that hadn't been appropriately taxed, in our view, we might put a tax on it as it comes into the country. And you can see the uh, attraction of that because uh, there's no point in closing down steel production in the UK if we just import it from somewhere else where it's still creating greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, Alice, you've been looking at, at this proposal as well. It sounds very sensible in principle. Has it got legs in practice? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> at, at, at least we have these very detailed proposals from the European Commission that uh, gives flesh to the mechanism. The whole idea is that you would have similar mechanism as the EU emission trading system in place for imported products. Not every type of imported products, but a selection of energy intensive imported products such as steel, iron, fertilizers, electricity, aluminium. I, I might forget one, iron, probably. Um, and the main objective of, of the mechanism is, as you said, to mitigate the risk of carbon leakage namely uh, enterprises moving, relocating to jurisdictions where you do not have any carbon price in place. So the EU plans to use that mechanism as an alternative to the system of free allowances that they've used so far in order to mitigate that risk of carbon leakage. At the moment, energy-intensive industries in the EU that are considered at risk of carbon leakage receive those free allowances, which means that they don't really pay the carbon price or they don't pay the full carbon price, these mechanisms would be gradually phased out and uh, the carbon border adjustment measure would be gradually phased in. Of course, it's difficult to implement in practice because you need to know how much CO2 emissions are linked to imported products. So how much greenhouse gas emissions have been released during the production of one ton of steel or one ton of iron or one ton of cement. Uh, that's very hard to know. You need to rely on the evidence that's being provided to you by importers based in China, India, or wherever they would be located. And if you don't believe them, you then need to use an alternative formula that you'll use in order to average the greenhouse gas emissions that you think 
have been released during the production of that one one ton of steel or one ton of cement, and that makes it yeah difficult to implement. And also, you need to um, presumably get agreement from some of those other countries. I mean, we, one could unilaterally impose this, but um, we don't really want a big trade war with China, presumably. Oh, I don't think you get agreements on other countries, because why would countries accept that you would start pricing the greenhouse gas emissions that have been released over the treaty? Countries would argue that they are taking care of those emissions, and that as long as they're part of the Paris agreements, you shouldn't price them. So I think it's a, a fully unilateral move. The EU says that they wouldn't impose this additional price if countries take the lead, meaning if foreign countries start imposing a similar carbon price as the carbon price that's being imposed in the EU. For, for example, for the UK, that, that means there wouldn't be any additional charge being imposed on products imported from the UK into the EU because the UK has a sufficiently high carbon price. But again, that's a very sensitive issue because it basically means that the EU will have to assess the carbon pricing policies imposed by other countries. For the UK, it's easy because the UK was part of the EU. So the carbon pricing policy in place in the UK is still very similar to the carbon pricing policy in place in the EU. But how can the EU know whether the carbon pricing policy imposed by China, the US, Canada, or any other country in the world is equivalent to the EU ETS. And why should the EU do that? So clearly, it could lead to trade war. You're totally right on that. It could also lead to dispute in front of the World Trade Organization. And we don't know what could happen. In the worst case scenario, the EU proposals will have a negative impact on the negotiations at the international level, including the negotiations that will take place in Glasgow and, and the next negotiations. On the positive side, the EU proposals could also encourage third countries, foreign countries, to introduce a carbon price, an ambitious carbon price. And in that case, that would have a positive effect because it could even help get into uh, the direction of a global carbon price, as we were discussing earlier. So it's very hard to assess what will be the exact impact of the EU proposals. And we could go into you know, either direction, either very negative impact or a very positive impact. So, so are, you a pos- are, you, are you an optimist or a pessimist on this? I'm not too much of a pessimist because also it's, it's at the moment, it's just a proposal. And so the EU could also use this uh, as a strategic tool, you know, not really implementing the scheme, but using it as a strategic instrument to tell foreign countries that they have to implement an ambitious carbon price and they have to do their share. So I, I could totally see the EU doing that because the EU has been doing that in the past in particular with the aviation sector, when the EU introduced, and the UK was part of the EU at the time, uh, but the, the, the EU included the aviation sector into the emission trading system. And so the emission trading system would have applied to uh, flights departing or landing into the EU, including flights from, let's say, Paris to New York, or flights from New York to, to Paris. And of course, third countries were not too happy with that move, but I think it really helps to have more ambitious targets at the level of the International Civil Aviation Organization. So I really think that the strategic use of the UETS and the inclusion of the, the aviation sector into the scheme helped to foster negotiations on the internalization of the emissions of the aviation sector at the international level. And so it could totally be that... Uh, the the CBAM proposals will lead to the same kind of 
the consequences. That's a, that, that's a very that's a very nice positive note and a, an interesting um, foray into the workings of international diplomacy. Peter, last word: Are, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the UK getting to, to, to net zero? I think it's easy to underestimate uh, some of the challenges. I mean, when you just look at the arithmetic of the amount of emission reductions that need to take place and where they need to take place, uh, it does look daunting. (laughs) And it's particularly daunting in a kind of international environment where you're not sure what other countries are going to do, particularly now. And and I think, as Elise has been emphasising, this element of international coordination is extremely important, not least because it may be cheaper for countries, other countries to reduce their carbon emissions than it is for the UK to do so. And so there's 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 money on the table that could be exploited uh, for that reason, but also because of the political economy that comes with problems of, of carbon leakage. How happy are voters going to be if plants and factories in the UK uh, shift overseas because of stringent carbon policies in ways that aren't actually any better uh, for the environment the situation was before. So I think the the high rate of progress the UK has shown to date gives some grounds for optimism, but I don't think we should underestimate some of the challenges. Oh dear, well, economists as ever showing their um, reputation for being miserable is very well deserved. Uh, (laughs) A a, a positive ending from Elise, a rather negative and downbeat one from Peter. He's obviously right to be clear about the scale of the challenge that we have. And I do worry, actually, um, that the electorate hasn't quite understood um, the scale of that challenge and how things will have to change. But we've still got 30 years and we're making good progress and I guess I'm a little bit more optimistic than, than Peter on that one. Anyway, thank you so much, Alice. Thank you, Peter. It's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And please do tune in to future editions of the IFS Zooms In.